0: Well, at a time when blacks faced Jim Crow segregation, menial employment opportunities, and the prospect of lynch mobs, Dorothy Faraby, a native of Norfolk, was sought after to advise presidents and Congress on civil rights matters and to assist foreign governments on public health issues. She ran one of the nation's most influential civil rights organizations, the National Council of Negro Women during the nascent racial equality movement and led one of history's most famous public health efforts, the Mississippi Health Project, during the Great Depression. Dr. Farabee was a household name in black America for 40 years. In her day, she was the media darling of the then thriving African-American press. But ironically, her fame faded as blacks achieved the professional and political power for which she had so vigorously fought. Today's speaker has written the first full scale biography of this significant but relatively unknown African American leader. Diane Kiesel is an acting New York State Supreme Court Justice, presiding over domestic violence cases in the Bronx County criminal term. She began her professional life, though, as a journalist, having worked in the Washington, D.C. Bureau of Copley Newspapers, where she covered Congress, the Supreme Court, and wrote feature stories for the San Diego Union and Evening Tribune. She's the winner of the 1983 Worth Bingham Award for Distinguished Investigative Journalism. She's a graduate of Rutgers University, where she majored in English and communications. She earned a master's degree in public affairs journalism from American University and graduated first in her law school class from the Catholic University of America. Her legal career, before being appointed to the bench in 1999, included a decade as a prosecutor in the office of the New York County District Attorney, where she handled sex crimes, homicides, and child abuse and police corruption cases. Apparently the boring stuff was handed to our speaker today. (laughs) In addition to her work on the bench, Diane has been an adjunct professor of law at the New York Law School for more than 20 years. She's the author of a textbook, Domestic Violence, law policy and practice, and of course most recently, she can bring us home, Dr. Dorothy Bolding Farabee, civil rights pioneer. She first learned about Dorothy Faraby when she read her obituary in the Washington Post in 1980, and I love this, has not stopped thinking about her since. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Diane Kiesel.
1: afternoon, everybody. Can you hear me? Okay. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Virginia Historical Society, for inviting me. If this were one of my law school classes, I'd be making you all come (laughs) sit up in front, but it's summertime, so I'm not going to do that to you today, okay? Um, We'll start by showing Dorothy Farabee in her prime, okay? There she is. That is Dorothy Farrabee marching up the Capitol steps in Washington, ready to take on a few congressmen. She's at the top of the stairs, as I showed you, and at this point in her life, at the top of her game. Dressed in the height of fashion as she always was, in a chic hat, matching shoes, and bag. She was in her mid-40s when this picture was taken, And when this picture was taken was probably one of the most recognizable African-American women in America. Long before Rosa Parks moved to the back of the bus in Montgomery and the young Reverend Martin Luther King led the boycott that followed, Dorothy Ferebee was battling racial and gender bias. From the time she wrote an essay at Simmons College in 1918 chiding the government for shutting its eyes to lynching while sending boys overseas to fight for America. Until she was a grandmother in Selma, Alabama in 1963, risking her life on voting rights, and even long after that, Dorothy led the charge for equal rights for all. She was born in Norfolk in 1898, and four years later, Jim Crow came marching on the back of Virginia's new constitution. When she died in 1980 in Washington, D.C., just months before the Reagan revolution swept into the country, um, her story died with her. During the 82 years she spent on Earth, she lived through lynching, poll taxes, segregation in schools, the housing in the military. For much of her life, I mean, imagine this now, for much of her life, there was no social security safety net or Medicaid to take care of the old and sick. It was illegal to educate about birth control in this country, abortion was a crime, blacks and whites could not marry in this country without facing jail, and no laws existed to stop white employers from refusing to hire black people because of the color of their skin. Dorothy Ferebee was shaped by all of this and most importantly, she helped change, helped shape the changes that made a lot of this ancient history. If there's one word that can describe Dorothy Ferebee, the word is visionary. She saw a future in which blacks and whites were equal in which men and women were equal, and she set about trying to make that world. She started a black settlement in Washington, D.C. when there was none. She brought health care to dirt poor sharecroppers in Mississippi when there wasn't any. On the eve of World War II, she used her platform as head of Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority to fight to integrate the military and to bring more women to leadership positions in government. As president of the National Council of Negro Women between 1949 to 1953, she fought for what we take as a given today. Integration, universal voting rights, equal pay for equal work for men and women, safe access to abortion. Some of her quests were doomed. She supported the uh, Equal Rights Amendment, which went nowhere. She waited in vain for the federal government to uh, enact a law to end lynching. Never happened. But throughout most of her life, she led a not-so-silent minority into the mainstream of American life, and in so doing, during her lifetime at least, brought herself fame. You know, today's professional woman can read uh, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. But there were no how-to books for Dorothy Faraby in her prime. But she could have written one. She had four keys to success that I want you to think about as I continue speaking today. One, her energy. Her calendar entries that she left at her desk were filled with uh, night after night, of attending conferences, making speeches, leading delegations. The second thing was her optimism in the face of overwhelming odds. Mississippi was the lynching capital of the world in the 1930s, yet she was unafraid to go down to Mississippi to help dirt poor sharecroppers and tenant farmers uh, take better care of their health she was going to cure them. She didn't care about what dangers she faced. Number three, her preparedness. At her death, she left stacks and stacks of um, legal pads, steno pads, loose notes, uh, uh, notes to herself about ideas, about speeches, and travel journals filled with all of uh, what she had done and what she planned to do that she worked and reworked over and over again to just be sure she got them right. And finally, long before there was a name for it, Dorothy Faraby had a strong belief in mentoring. She attached herself to strong men and strong women, savvy enough to know they could be of help to her. For example, she was a lifelong friend of Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, the first African-American president of Howard University where Dorothy worked and taught. He was often considered difficult and imperious, but she was able to befriend him and and work closely with him. She cultivated the iconic Mary McLeod Bethune, the founder of the National Council of Negro Women way back in 1935, and a member of FDR's so-called Black Cabinet, Uh, Mary uh, McLeod Methune was considered the First Lady of Black America. She tried, or Dorothy, with less success to befriend Eleanor Roosevelt, and although she met the First Lady to promote her famous Mississippi health project, she finagled an invitation from the First Lady to have her children come and pose with her at the White House in 1935, some of her requests for Eleanor's attention Such as she wanted uh, when she wanted a donation for her southeast settlement house, ended up in Mrs. Roosevelt's circular file. But along with fame came personal suffering at a price not often paid by men. While Dorothy was out raising her profile and saving the world, her own twin children were adrift without their mother's guidance, and her jealous husband took solace in the arms of other women. So, Okay, that's our introduction. So you're all sitting here saying, well, if this woman is so terrific, why don't I know more about her, okay? Why isn't she better known today? Timing has a lot to do with it. She was born to well-bred, college-educated parents at the turn of the 20th century, which cemented her place in the so-called Talented Tenth. These were the African-American elite who believed in the teachings of the great Dr. W. E. B. E.B. DuBois, they saw themselves as destined to lead the rest of the race to a better life. Dorothy embodied this philosophy all of her life. She put it into practice by getting as educated as she could, by obeying the tenets of the church, by working hard, by maintaining her dignity and self-respect, by holding herself as as an example, and by helping others who were not as fortunate as she. But her Uplift the Race philosophy was not adopted by a new generation of civil rights activists. They were tired of waiting 100 years for rights that should have been theirs long before. Her philosophy became as woefully outdated as uh, the veiled hats and corsages that she continued to wear well into the 1970s. When she died of congestive heart failure in 1980, her story, for the most part, died with her. At the time of her death, what was on everybody's mind? We remember, if we were around then, when are the American hostages coming home from Iran? America was a much more conservative place, and the old civil rights agenda was pushed to the side. Beyond honoring Dr. King, uh, and of course deservedly so, as the movement's icon, the lesser known heroes like Dorothy were left to fade away. So today I begin my resuscitation effort of uh, the great Dorothy Faraby, who began in Virginia, uh, her family did at least, not as part of the Virginia elite. Her maternal ancestors were slaves, So how did Dorothy go from being uh, an ancestor of someone on the auction block to being one of the African-American elite? And the answer is here, the mosquito. Now, bear with me, all right? I promise to connect these dots, all right? Don't forget this guy. But take a look at this one. I should give you a test. Who is this? Okay. This man is, Virgin- uh, is Richard Galt Leslie Page. He was known by his initials RGL. This is his photograph when he was newly elected to the Virginia General Assembly in 1871. He is a man of mixed race and he is Dorothy Bolding Farabee's maternal grandfather. In the Assembly, He was known as the militant mulatto. Mulatto is not a uh, politically correct word today, but it was the word for mixed race people in his time. He catapulted himself into the national spotlight to stop lynching, as his granddaughter would do 40 years later as a sophomore at Simmons College. Now, I want to read to you Um, a little bit, a little excerpt. I promise not to come here and read my old notes to you like a lot of your old professors did, but you you need to listen to um, Dorothy's voice. This is a 17 or 18 year old girl. Okay. In her sophomore year she entered the civil rights arena. With war still raging, she challenged her government to live up to its rationale for entering the fighting abroad by confronting the lack of freedom afforded her race at home. In a powerful essay with the caustic title, lynching as an expression of Americanism, she used language as passionate as that used by her grandfather when he railed against lynching 40 years earlier as a member of the Virginia legislature. She wrote, lynching and Americanism, does that not strike you That these terms are singularly incongruous, they are incongruous, lamentably so, and have been for a great number of years. But I think their incompatibility is all the more apparent now than it has been before, for the reason that America is just now allied to the cause of national and individual emancipation, of justice and freedom to the entire world, when at the same time, Her idea of justice and mercy meted out to all mankind has been shamefully besmirched upon its own soil. The essay was published in a local newspaper under the headline, Colored Girl at Simmons Rights on Lynching. Now mind you, under the Espionage Act passed on the eve of war to prohibit disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the United States on pain of up to 20 years in jail for it, this essay arguably demonstrated sufficient disloyalty to this country to warrant Dorothy's indictment and prosecution. Yet on this seminal occasion, throughout her lifetime, Dorothy demonstrated that streak of fearlessness when it came to standing up for civil rights. Plus, her religious upbringing instilled in her the biblical idea that we are our brother's keepers. She wrote, if the knowledge of such crimes is common to both the public and the government, and no voice, no pen, no hand is raised in protest against them, the sin swiftly settles upon the brow of every American citizen. Again, this from an 18-year-old girl. Okay. Little has been written about R.G.L. Page from his birth in Norfolk on May 31st, 1846, until his death from peritonitis in the same city on September 21st, 1904. In an oral history Dorothy gave shortly before her death, and by the way, I, I can't image, she had a voice which was a combination of Eleanor Roosevelt, Rose Kennedy and the local elocution teacher. Her her grandchildren do it beautifully. I can't. But this is what she said shortly before her death about her family tree. My maternal grandfather, Richard Galt Leslie Page, was the son of Thomas Page, governor of Virginia. While the latter did not recognize him or claim his offspring as a son, He did everything possible to give him a superior education. He sent him out of Virginia to Massachusetts, where he received all of his training and finished the Harvard Law School in the graduating class of 1869, the first colored man to receive a degree there. Isn't that fascinating? It would be more fascinating if a word of it were true. There's no governor of Virginia named Thomas Page. There's no record of RGL Page ever attending Harvard. And the first, quote, colored man to graduate from the law school there was Dorothy's maternal great uncle, Judge George L. Ruffin. RGL's connection to Ruffin was that he married the judge's little sister, Lily, in 1868. The couple had nine children, including Florence Cornelia, and let's hear. That's his wife, Lily Ruffin, who he married, okay? So you get a mental picture of this, okay? The couple had nine children, including Florence Cornelia Page, known as Flossie, and that woman was Dorothy Farabee's mother. Now, why is Dorothy saying all this? Okay, well. A couple of reasons. Number one, she was quite elderly when she gave this uh, talk. Uh, She gave uh, gave this oral history in 1979 uh, and died uh, within uh, the year. She may have been repeating family lore. She may have been confused due to medication she was taking for congestive heart failure. Or her son and his wife, uh, who had the opportunity to edit the transcript after uh, her death, may have edited some errors into it. But you know something? It's also quite possible that this was deliberate because Dorothy Farabee was creative about her personal life. (laughs) Creative. We have other words for it, but we'll call it creative. She was always anxious to portray herself and her family in the best light. Now, there was a governor of Virginia named John Page. He was a classmate of Thomas Jefferson's at the College of William and Mary, but he held office between 1802 and 1805 and died 40 years before Dorothy's grandfather was born. But he did sire 20 legitimate children, and his connection to Dorothy, if there is one, may indeed come from one of his relatives. But RGL Page's story is really more exciting than Dorothy's creative version of it. Um, because he began his journey from bondage to the Virginia House of Delegates uh, because of that mosquito, okay? That mosquito carried the yellow fever that roared through Norfolk in the summer of 1855. The fever arrived on June 7th aboard a ship from the Virgin Islands, and the disease quickly decimated the seaport population. By September 1st, uh, one third of the city's 6,000 inhabitants were dead. Uh, among them was the husband, now I've got to put this word husband to the side, okay, of a woman named Phyllis Galt. Phyllis Galt was the aunt of, R, uh, of RGL Page, Richard Galt Leslie Page. She was a mixed race slave who was a talented dressmaker who lived in her master's house. She said she had a husband who was going to buy her freedom but died in the yellow fever epidemic, and she feared being sold. Now, her story shows up in a narrative about rescues made by an organization called the Philadelphia Vigilance Society, in other words, the Underground Railroad. And that narrative was written by William Still, who was a former slave. And it was published shortly after the Civil War. And it was based on, literally, interviews with people who had lived through slavery and its escape. So in November of 1855, while the city is still reeling from the aftermath of the yellow fever epidemic, Phyllis Gall makes a break from Norfolk, along with 21 other runaway slaves. They cram into the belly of a schooner, which was designed specifically to hide its human cargo. And it was piloted by the infamous Captain Alfred Fountain, who was kind of rough around the edges and an unlikely hero of the Underground Railroad. But for a price, he would ferry slaves north from Virginia. And as a seamstress, Phyllis may have pocketed some extra money to be able to pay for it. Her ship landed in Philadelphia, from there the Underground Railroad got her to Boston where she was hidden in plain sight in the home of an abolitionist couple named George and Susan Hillard in the Tony Beacon Hill neighborhood of Boston. So the next Page family member who makes a run for it is Dorothy's great uncle Thomas who was a teenager. A year later, Captain Fountain takes him to Philadelphia and then Boston. Now RGL in 1856 is 10 year old kid. He doesn't have any money to pay Captain Fountain so he just stows away in the stowaway part of the uh, boat that's going to Philadelphia and he too ends up in the Hillard home. Now the Hillards believed in educating the slaves they rescued. So they sent Dorothy's grandfather to public school in Boston where he became what William Still described as an intelligent mechanic and a man of promise. But he didn't go to Harvard, as Dorothy bragged. He did come into contact with the uh, high-class Ruffin family. Look how beautifully this woman is dressed. She is a member of Boston's African-American elite. They probably came into contact at the 12th Baptist Church, where um, both runaway slaves and uh, African-American elite uh, worshipped. Her side of the family had been free since the early 19th century. She was born in 1849, one of eight children. And her brother George, Dorothy's great uncle, indeed did go to Harvard. In fact, he was the first uh, uh, graduate of Harvard's law, black graduate of Harvard's law school. Uncle George was elected to the state legislature and, a, and the first African American criminal court judge in Massachusetts, and one of his close buddies was Frederick Douglass. And if you go back and read um, early editions to Douglass's inspiring life story, you'll see that George Ruffin wrote the introduction to one of the editions. So Dorothy, by the way, returns to Boston early in the 20th century to live with another one of the Ruffin sisters while she attended Boston uh, Latin High School, Boston Girls Latin High School, Simmons College, and Tufts Medical School. And although she would graduate from Tufts with honors, in 1924, there is no hospital in the country that would accept her for an internship because her skin was black. Instead, she sat for a civil service, service exam She scored well and was hired by Friedman's Hospital, which became part of Howard University Hospital. And at the time, that was run by the federal government. It serviced African-Americans in segregated Washington, so they needed African-American doctors, obviously, to staff it. Dorothy became an obstetrician-gynecologist with a private practice in uh, Washington, D.C. Okay. RGL, uh, her uncle, I'm sorry, her grandfather, while in Boston, probably working as a brass refinisher, amassed $2,500 in real estate holdings, which was a fortune. In 1871, he returns to Norfolk with his family. Besides being a legislature, he's a customs inspector, a deputy postmaster, and buys and sells real estate. He bought a grand home in a predominantly white neighborhood in the Berkeley section of Norfolk, if any of you are familiar with it. He hung out a shingle and practiced law too. Why not? He seems to be a, he does just about everything. The the family's large two-story frame house with a Victorian wraparound porch was where Dorothy would play as a child, rescuing birds with broken wings and putting slings on all of her dolls, making believe that she was a doctor. Now, let me show you. There's Dorothy. OK, Dorothy is this little girl sitting on her father's lap. That's her mother, Flossie. That's her brother, Ruffin, and her little brother, Richard. And look at this family. They are one wealthy family. Look at those beautiful clothes. Every year, they go to they, they march down Main Street, and they go get their picture taken. This was a, a tradition Dorothy continued through uh, most of her life. So let me tell you a little bit about her mother, okay? Uh, And all these people are obviously so influential in forming the woman that she becomes. I mean, look at her grandfather. He's got nine jobs, so of course Dorothy had to, you know, one-up him and do ten, right? (laughs) Okay. So, Flossie bolding okay? She and her mother, Lily Page, were what we called club women in the early 20th century. They joined forces with other like-minded ladies, filling the void occupied in more enlightened times by government agencies and paid social workers. In bustles, slender boots, and feathered hats, they gathered in church basements to organize neighborhood improvement associations and to help the poor. Flossie married Dorothy's father, there he is, okay, Married Dorothy's father, Benjamin Richard Boulding, in 1893. Now, he came from a family of farmers, and while his background was nowhere near as lofty as his wife's, he did graduate from Hampton Institute and counted Booker T. Washington among his close friends. He held a coveted job as a a clerk for the U.S. Railway Mail Service. He made $1,000 a year when the average wage was 480. Dorothy was born on October 10, 1898, the youngest of three children. African American births were not registered in Virginia at the time, and, and here we go with the creative, uh, Dorothy creation number two, okay? She said she didn't really know the correct date of her birth. I don't believe this. I think it was a way for her to fudge her birthday. Which she did all her life. She was when she married a man four years younger than she. She said on her marriage license she was born in 1901. When she wanted a job with the State Department in middle age uh, to basically go around the world and investigate how foreign service workers were um, being treated medically, she took another few years off of her age too. All right. Now, a decade into the 20th century, the page-bolding family fortunes began to decline. This was both societal and it was personal. Remember, we have Jim Crow now firmly getting a grasp on the South, and that drastically reduces opportunities for African Americans. But on the personal front, Dorothy's father drops dead suddenly in 1910, leaving her mother with essentially no income. Dorothy's grandmother, Lily, dies three years later and for some reason, uh, which I could never figure out, leaves most of her money to her favorite son, R.G.L. Page Jr., known as Leslie. Now this is very odd because he is an attorney. He graduated from Howard University Law School and he was probably much more able to fend for himself academically than Flossie was as a widow with three young children, but that's what grandma did. As a result, Dorothy credited her oldest brother with having helped put her through medical school. He deferred his own law school studies until her career was launched. After interning at Friedman's, Dorothy joined the faculty of the Howard University Medical School as a clinical professor of obstetrics and opened a medical practice. Howard was known as the Black Harvard back then, and anyone associated with that school was on the highest rung of the Washington, D.C. social ladder. But Dorothy also saw the underside of D.C. life while serving on the hospital ambulance corps, and that's how she became involved in the settlement house movement, which was very popular in the early 1920s. She founded the Southeast Settlement in 1930 because the all-white friendship house settlement in Washington, D.C. would not accept black children into its program. Now, let me give you a little taste of how Dorothy operates here, okay? You get to see her methods. All right. A six-room vacant house at the corner of 3rd and G Street, Southeast beckoned. Dorothy thought the empty house would be ideal for a daycare center. She spoke with the realtor who offered to rent the house to her for $17 a month or sell it for 2000 oh, We don't have that money, she told him. Well, do you expect to be given it, he asked? No, she replied. We expect you to come down in price. <laughs> in Dorothy's first campaign, this demonstrated her determination. In less than a year, she organized the Washington Welfare Association to raise money for the house. The association secured the property, hired staff, bought furnishings, and opened for business. In Dorothy's telling of the story many years later, the end justifies the means. Early on, Dorothy paid a call on Lydia Birkeland, director of Friendship House, an all-white daycare center in the neighborhood where Dorothy hoped to open her own settlement. She claims she shocked Birkeland by saying, we want to have a daycare center. And I understand you have one here, may I bring my Negro children?" In her wildest dreams, Dorothy could not have thought that Friendship House would acquiesce. She said Birkeland got red behind the gills and replied, this house is for white children only. Nonetheless, Birkeland invited her to make her pitch at an upcoming meeting of the Friendship House board. Getting a chance to speak before the board was what Dorothy really wanted. So Dorothy went to the meeting renewed her request to Friendship House to bring black children inside. She said, it was as if I had thrown a bomb into the room. Everybody started to speak, oh, no, we couldn't do that. So she slyly switched tactics and asked for money. Well, will you help us? We're thinking of trying to get a house right around the corner from you. There was a sigh of relief and a round of donations. (laughs) In 1930, Dorothy married a dentist who also taught at Howard. Now, that's Dorothy, around the time, looking lovely. She was a big fashionista, uh, ladies in the audience. She never was without the latest fashion. Claude Bolding fereby I have a time-traveling crush on this man. <laughs> He's gorgeous. He's beautiful. And this is a, a doctor. He was a dentist. This is Dr. Farabee when he was a captain in uh, the United States Army. OK, so she meets Dr. Faraby, uh, and, and here's her description of their meeting. And I've got to move this along. I'm talking a lot here, so I will uh, hurry up. Um, OK, uh, he appeared to be impressed with what I was trying to do, not only in the health service, but at Southeast House. We became good friends. Interested in each other's activities. One evening, he said, "I think we should open offices together." So that was the nature of the courtship of Farabee and Bolding. Sounds romantic, huh? <laughs> Once again, it would be if it were true. Um, but you know, I don't believe this either. This is the hurt pride of a much older woman who who lost her husband under um, under sad circumstances. Um, Uh, In his youth, Claude Faraby was drop-dead handsome, Ivy League educated, he graduated from Columbia University's dental school, he was athletic, he was a track star, and he was an accomplished artist. He was suave, he spoke French, he was an all all round high-class guy, and Dorothy was quite a catch herself. She had intelligent uh, eyes, a delightful smile, perfect bone structure, a sense of style, she was funny, she was smart, she loved to dance and socialize, and she could even play the ukulele. Should have been an ideal marriage, made in heaven, right? This marriage was a disaster. One year after they were married, Dorothy gave birth to a pair of beautiful twins. I think that's our next picture, the beautiful twins. Nope, that's the that's the beautiful twins, okay? Beautiful twins. And... Uh, uh, but already the bloom was off the rose. They were fraternal twins, one boy, one girl. She named the boy Claude Thurston Farabee II. She named the girl Dorothy Bolding Farabee Jr. <laughs> no controversy, she said. One for each of us. Now, Claude was a proud man. And next to any other wife, he would have been an A-lister. I mean, he was a captain in the dental corps during World War II, one of the highest-ranking African-American officers in the United States military, but he could never shake being Mr. Dorothy Farabee. He also tried really hard to become a major uh, in the military, and, you know, the the racist uh, military structure at the time wasn't having any of it, and it never happened for him, at least not while he was uh, during the war. Um, While he's in the South Pacific, Dorothy's got a bird's eye view of history. She's, I I mean, he's an important guy, but she's at the founding of the United Nations in San Francisco in 1945, schmoozing with heads of state from all over the world. She's visiting leaders of the newly emerging African nations in the early 60s uh, after they emerged from colonialism. She testifies before Congress constantly. She meets with presidents and first ladies. So while she, you know, how can he possibly compete with this? So that while she's out changing the world, her children are out of control, and he starts seeing other women. He has a very serious romance during the war with a civilian employee in Fort Devons, Massachusetts, where he was briefly stationed and although Dorothy knows he's philandering, she doesn't divorce him. I think she loved him. The marriage finally imploded in 1950 when their beautiful oh and let me show you one other picture here. This is them as a family. I mean, look how they're beautiful, you know. I know this is a little fuzzy, but they're prosperous, they're they're elegant, their children are beautiful, always dressed uh, in in you know the same lovely clothes, so um, the marriage implodes when her 18-year-old daughter dies of what is probably a botched abortion, but because Dorothy is the most visible woman in black America at the time as the head of the NCNW, she covers it up by telling the press her daughter died of a sudden attack of pneumonia, but a careful review of the evidence shows this is simply not the case. Her concern about her reputation frightened her daughter into taking care of the unwanted pregnancy herself, rather than seeking the help of her mother, who was an obstetrician gynecologist. Dorothy Jr.'s medical records indicate by the time she reached her mother from college in upstate New York to Washington, D.C., she was already dying of septic shock. After her daughter's horrible death, Dorothy finally filed for divorce, Claude quickly marries a dietician many years younger, and he lived a long and quiet life with her. Now Dorothy was so worried about her good Christian image that rather than reveal to the world she was a divorcee, she told everybody in the press she was a widow. (laughs) He outlived her, by the way, by nearly 20 years. Okay very, it's, it's hard in 45 minutes to tell you all of Dorothy's achievements without sounding like I'm reading uh, from a resume, okay? Throughout the Kappa Alpha, the elite African American service sorority, she was the medical director of one of the most famous undertakings, the Mississippi Health Project from 1935 to 1941. She brought healthcare to desperately poor sharecroppers. The picture that I passed over, that's them in Mississippi. Um, I, which one is Dorothy? I have no idea. But she would go down there every summer with volunteer nurses and teachers from uh, Howard and elsewhere around the country to uh, bring share uh, to bring healthcare to sharecroppers. Okay, um, it was one of the most famous public health projects in history. I, I'm going to just read you a few uh, because this is just this is really the pinnacle of of her her her. Her life. Not until Dwight, not until General Dwight David Eisenhower plotted the invasion of Normandy in World War II, would there be as much planning as that done by Alpha Kappa Alpha to set up the Mississippi Health Project? The Supreme Allied commanders were AKA President Ida Jackson and Dorothy Farabee. Dorothy took Ida's inspiration and turned it into one of the most successful volunteer. Uh, social welfare projects in history. En route, to New York City, uh, en route to New York City to the 1934 AKA Convention, Jackson detoured to Washington to attend a banquet in her honor hosted by Dorothy's local sorority chapter and to join the Roosevelts in lighting the National Christmas Tree. While she stayed there with Norma Boyd, one of the AKA founders, she talked nonstop about the need for a sorority-run health project in the Mississippi Delta. Because Dorothy was a doctor and Southeast Settlement had cemented her local reputation, Boyd introduced the two. It so happened, the day they met, Dorothy was waiting for an obstetrical patient to deliver. While the uncomfortable mother-to-be struggled all night in labor, Dorothy, Ida, and Norma stayed up, brainstorming about what would come to be known as the Mississippi Health Project before the sun came up. Dorothy agreed to be its medical director. From the moment she met Ida Jackson in December 1934 until she led a multi-car caravan into the deep south on July 5, 1935, Dorothy charmed, begged, and bullied key people to support the AKA clinic. She raised money, selected staff, arranged transportation, got medical supplies. Um, secured the blessing of state and local, meaning white, officials, and tried to convince landowners to let their sharecroppers participate. The duty of every AKA woman, Dorothy wrote to the SARS, was to get behind the health committee with moral and financial support. She can do this best by talking about the project wherever she goes, thus creating national interest in the work and doing a good press, press agent job. And so the Mississippi Health Project began, fueled by a stream of letters from Ida to Dorothy and back again and anyone else who they thought could help. Dorothy was hit by a huge blow on the eve of their journey. The only other doctor, Zenobia Gilben, backed out leaving Dorothy as the sole physician on the project. Lord, what a headache I've had trying to get people to say yes, she lamented in yet another letter to Ida. And now Z. Gilpin turns up with a changed mind. Unless the health department there can carry on to a large extent, I shall be in a very difficult spot. However, I'm not discouraged, shall do all that I can in the time I have to put it over, single handed if necessary. I leave wearily but courageously. A dozen women made their way to Mississippi in 1935, and looking back from the 21st century of superhighways, central air conditioning, jet travel, and laws against racial discrimination, it's tempting to underestimate the strength and bravery of Dorothy and the women who went with her to Mississippi. And given the kudos it brought them, it's also tempting to accuse them of undertaking the project because it would enhance their reputations but in 1935, they had no idea how it would turn out. The travelers were forced to stay at black colleges or in the homes of friends or sorority sisters along the route because Jim Crow went well beyond the railroads to include hotels and restaurants. They left at 4.48 in the morning on July 5th. They began an 830 mile journey in close to 90 degree heat. Cars were not air conditioned. Decent middle class women didn't leave the house without wearing dresses, silk stockings, and girdles. Dorothy loaded up her husband's car with medical supplies, three passengers, and their luggage. Ever the field marshal, she even dictated what the women could bring. One suitcase filled with white smocks and cool cotton dresses. So after months of planning, last-minute setbacks, four days of driving, Dorothy thought she'd be ready for anything when the clinic opened that uh, Tuesday after they started out. But nothing could prepare her for the grinding ignorance, poverty, and health problems she encountered there. As she wrote later, we went, we saw, we were stunned. Um, Wrapping this up, um, in 1949 she succeeds the iconic Mary Bethune to become the second president of the powerful National Council of Negro Women. she then, this is Mary Bethune, right there. This is Dorothy Farabee wearing the corsage, right? This is the very famous Dorothy Height, who will succeed her um, in 1956. And I think they're wearing the same dress. What do you think? <laughs> I think so. And this uh, woman is Vivian Carter Mason. She succeeded Dorothy as the NCNW president. And um, there's a new book about to come out by her. She's a Virginia woman, if I'm not mistaken, okay? Um, In 1963, Dorothy goes to a voter rights demonstration in Selma at a standing room only rally in a church. She gives an electrifying speech that prophetically champions women's rights. Haven't talked about this at all, but Dorothy was an amazing, amazing champion of women's rights and a really early pioneer. And interestingly enough, at the end of her life, she was asked, what barrier was greater? Uh, racial bias or gender bias, and she said gender bias. She said it left women feeling like they weren't good enough to accomplish anything, and that drove her completely crazy. Anyway, she's got this standing room only bunch of young activists, and she gives this woman's rights speech, and by the time she sat down, uh, they were just all cheering. She had basically converted a whole new generation of activists. President Kennedy would later call on her, for help with support uh, for his Civil Rights Act. Um, Lyndon Johnson would ask her to come to the White House to help him entertain African heads of states. Um, Before she died, she was photographed with just about, that's her looking beautifully in her prime also. Here she is with Josephine Baker, the the famous Chanteuse, who came to help the ailing NCNW make money in the 50s. Dorothy looked sitting there There's Dorothy in the middle, very happy to be sitting next to Josephine Baker. There she is with Mamie Eisenhower. There's Dorothy. There's Mamie. There's the iconic Mary Bethune. Um, There she is with Nelson Rockefeller, the the future governor and vice president. I don't know who the gentleman in the turban is. Um, There she is with Pat Nixon. Uh, Dorothy's quite elderly now. This is 1974, and that's also Dorothy Height the day they unveiled a statue of uh, Mary Bethune in Washington. Look, she was on the cutting edge of everything. Um, And there she is uh, now, very elderly, uh, ready to give one of her uh, speeches at an event, still looking lovely. And there she is uh, near her death. Look at her. She's wearing the International Women's Year symbol. Uh, She went down to Mexico to participate in that conference. And look, the Civil Rights Movement, if if there's anything I can impart to you today, it's that the Civil Rights Movement was not one man, it was not one woman. It was a large pyramid of self-sacrificing, hard-working, brave men and women who each played a role in creating a structure that would stand as a monument Uh, to their achievement of knocking down artificial barriers erected by racism and sexism. And Dorothy Farabee was one of them. The last thing I want to do is read to you. She can bring us home. What's that about, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you what that's about. Um, It's about what life was like in Mississippi when they went down there in 1935. And this is what she said at the end of her life. It was then that we initiated the first mobile health clinic in the country. Those at home who thought we were down in Mississippi having a big time should have been there to see the difficulties we experienced. This was for the days that the WPA built decent roads in Mississippi. The roads were nothing but mud or shale and sand and rock, little rocks and gravel. When we traveled, we encountered nothing but dust. One couldn't see the car in front. No routes were marked. You didn't know where you were. But fortunately, there's something about me that I can always come back from where I've been. So when the members of the team noticed that even without markings or signs, I could always get home, they made me leader of the group because they said, wherever we've been, she can bring us home. Thank you. I yaked far too long, I'm sorry, but there's time for a few questions and I'd love to have some if anybody has any. Yes, sounds like a remarkable uh, person. <laughs> to what extent was she engaged with other civil rights and women's rights leaders For example, Roy Wilkins and Betty Frieden, folks of that type. Well, she certainly worked uh, closely with um, the NAACP. Uh, They would often join forces on one particular issue or another. She has a very interesting, uh, there's a little interesting sidebar about what happened with her and uh, Roy Wilkins. She actually ended up suing not Roy Wilkins, she ended up suing a paper called Mohammed Speaks in the 70s, because they claimed that she uh, slurred Roy Wilkins by essentially calling him, um, you know, uh, uh, some not very nice things about how he was uh, unwilling to be uh, an activist in civil rights. And she never said it. And um, she was very close to uh, other segments of the movement. And she ended up suing. Uh, They defaulted, she won $10,000, and I don't think she ever saw a dime of it, but uh, there is a picture in the book of her standing in front of the White House with Roy Wilkins and others um, when they had uh, all gone to see Harry Truman to ask, how can we assist you in uh, moving your civil rights uh, bill along? And of course, he in his cranky way, said, don't come here whining to me, go see Congress, they're the problem. Uh, And they did.
0: The National Council of Negro Women, was that? Uh, did that have any connection with the NAACP, and does it still exist?
1: The National Council of Negro Women uh, did not have a formal collect- connection with the NAACP. It was formed in 1935 by Mary McLeod Bethune. It does still exist today. Um, there have only been four presidents uh, up until Dr. Dorothy Height died recently. Um, it was formed as an organization of organizations. Uh, Mary Bethune decided there were all of these um, groups out there, Alpha Kappa Alpha, uh, black nurses organizations, and what she wanted were a, a, a consortium of women's groups who would be strong and powerful and whose voice would be heard. And I think there was sort of an undercurrent of feminism here before there was any name for it, because women were, in many ways, kind of pushed out of the civil rights movement. If you remember the famous I Have a Dream speech, uh, the only woman on that platform was Mahalia Jackson, who was singing. And Dorothy Height was the president of the NCNW then. And she was pretty steamed. I mean, she wanted a woman on that platform speaking. And Bayard Rustin, the kind of right-hand man to Dr. King, that that wasn't happening. So uh, this was a way, I think, for women to um, uh, to take a, a a more active part in the movement, and yes, it does exist today. They have a beautiful um, the Dorothy Height Building is right on Pennsylvania, I think, in Ninth, uh, right there in the heart of all of the uh, uh, the monuments in Washington. Yes. Um, what do we know about her descendants? Um, you know, the children of her children. Yeah. Uh, okay. She um, she only had two children. Um, her daughter, as I said, died in uh, 1950. Her son died a year after her. He ended up becoming a dentist, like his father. He died a year after her of pancreatic cancer, so he died in the fall of 1981. He left four children, and they some of them Uh, They've had a lot of tragedy. His oldest son, Claude Thurston Faraby III, was a police detective in Montgomery County, Maryland. He died at age 47 in a motorcycle accident. Another son, um, Carl Faraby, um, had some uh, substance issues, and he died of um, cancer. Uh, And two remaining children are still alive. Uh, in their 50s. One works as a, a computer uh, analyst, and the other one is an architect. And they were, they were lovely, and both were extraordinarily cooperative. Some of the photos you've seen came from uh, their attic. And they have waited a long time for somebody to come along and write about Grandma, who they called Gam, because they felt that she really got overlooked by history. There is a Dorothy Farabee at NPR. Yes, Dorothy L. Farabee. Yes, yes. Is she related? Is she? You know, that's an interesting question. I interviewed her, and we spoke. And she believes she has some distant um, relation to Dorothy Farabee. Neither one of us could um, figure it out. She learned from her mom what that family relationship may have not been. And remember, she wouldn't have been related to Dorothy. She would have been related to Claude. Dorothy's a balding. Claude's a Farabee. And um, so the answer is, I don't know. I, she's lovely, by the way. We've, we've, we've uh, spoken uh, about this book, and, and she's a lovely woman. But I don't know the answer. <laughs> Somebody really ought to make this a well, wonderful Well, from your movie. lips to God's ears. <laughs> Do you know if she knew Pauline Murray from Durham? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I know that her brother, Ruffin Bolding Faraby, was a um, lawyer in North Carolina. And uh, he may have had some connection with her, but I don't know if Polly Murray was one of the people who she knew. Um, you know, I, I, have probably been to, I have been to archives all around the country, and it shocked me as to how many people had um, connections with Dorothy Ferebee. And at some point, you know, honk, if you knew Dorothy Farrabee, I'd probably still be sitting in, in archives right now and, and not be standing here. So um, at some point I did cut it off. Uh, particularly after um, the the last chapters are really about her doing some world traveling, etc. After sixty three, um, I, mean, I, I I take that back. After around nineteen sixty seven, at least as far as civil rights were concerned, she was a little on the side. But she became very active in women's rights. You know, she was down in Mexico City at the first international women's conference in nineteen seventy five. She broke her ankle. She complained about being taken to the hospital. She didn't want to go. She came out. Instead of using her crutches, she was waving them in victory. Um, Well, maybe you can um, write a book about Pauline Murray. Well, she's an amazing woman, and uh, it's a good topic for someone. Yes, I wanted to ask about her relationship with Bethune and the other African-American female leaders. I know it was a bit fraught sometimes with different issues, so I'd love to hear about that. Well, you know, we tend to think of people in the movement as monolithic. Well, guess what? They have all of the same ambitions and jealousies and strains that all of us do. Um, Mary Bethune was an icon, and there she was really... If you read the African-American press, they used to call her the first lady of black America. She was the Eleanor Roosevelt of, the, of, of African-American women. And everybody wanted to rub elbows with her. And Dorothy had a leg up because she was her personal physician. So... Dorothy was shrewd. So as a matter of fact, when I found Mary Bethune's address book, there were two names in it, her son and Dorothy Farabees on the inside cover as to who to call. And of course, that meant Dorothy was constantly watching You know, her, don't eat that sweet. It's going to get your blood pressure up, et cetera. But I digress. Because of that relationship, when uh, Mary Bethune went to be a uh, a consultant for the uh, founding of the United Nations, she brought her physician along with her because her health wasn't very good. This enabled Dorothy to elbow out. All these other really important women, like um, like Eunice Carter and uh, and Irene Mallory and Vivian Carter Mason, there were a lot of really educated, sharp women, and they all wanted to succeed. The first lady of Black America, I mean, they wanted to be her. But there's Dorothy spending six weeks alone with her, you know, on a train at this thing back, and essentially this whole mentoring thing that I talked about. Um, Bethune anointed her. So when Bethune decided finally to retire, they had a convention, and an election, but everybody knew this election was essentially fixed. I I mean, Dorothy was going to be uh, the president because Bethune said so. And the women really resented her. And for the next four years, Dorothy had a real problem. Here she was, president, and... If they wanted to do something, one of the board members would say, well, well, let's ask Mrs. Bethune. Mrs. Bethune's on retirement in Florida. I'm the president now. And it became very difficult for Dorothy to lead. And if you read the letters back and forth that are in the NCNW archives, you'll see that the, that the women were always second-guessing her, giving her a hard time. I, I think they were jealous. Dorothy was formidable, and, and I think there was some jealousy. Now, they also loved her, so it was kind of a, a mixed bag. Please join me. Thank you.